everybody for uh, thank you for coming tonight. And uh, you know, there's this concept of a family, okay? And sometimes you don't see the family until Pesach. You don't see the family until they're together, but they really are together. It's just on those rare occasions we're together that we remember we're family. But really every morning, every day, and every evening, we are connected to family. And never more so, never as much in my life as since October 7th have we been connected as family. Not only because of tragic things that have happened, but because of the responsibility people have taken to make things right, okay? We, the family wants to have things right, to, be protect, to have a sense of safety, a sense of predictability, a sense of trust. So we who live in California, and some of us also live sometimes in Israel, but let's say we who live in California, we don't have the same amount of skin in the game, so it seems, as the people in Israel. You know, in Israel, people have to really look after each other. But I believe that every Jew here also has to look after each other. We have to care about each other. We have to be mindful of each other. It doesn't mean that we have to be, you know, like, be paranoid. But the idea is just to care. Um, one of the reasons that I um, am even here is because I said, how can I live in Los Angeles without a community? And I grew up, I was born in Los Angeles. So I said, but the older I got, the less community existed. You know, it used to be when you went to school, you'd walk to school with all the kids on your block. You know, you could, kids would ride their bicycles, play in the park. So today, it's the people who have that are lucky, like some people in Santa Monica have that, they're lucky. But not every child has that experience of having a community. We as Jews have a community because we're connected by history. And we're connected by our, um, our caring for each other. And we're connected by the sense of duty and truth. Um, because there needs to be a structure to family, uh, that's what attracted me to learn Torah. I never knew what Torah was. I mean, I had no idea. It was actually the hidden structure inside the Jewish people. It's kind of like, as I mentioned Elkanah just a moment ago, you're not conscious of your bones inside of your body, but that's what holds you together. You're not conscious of your limbic system, you know, of your, of your nervous system, of, of, of everything that runs through you, but that's how you exist. And therefore, we understand that in what we call the spiritual system, the Torah system, the history of mankind, in terms of the Jewish people and the Jewish people vis-a-vis -vis the world, um, that's part of what makes us family. And therefore, I invited uh, Rabbi Elchanan Shoff here tonight. Now, Rabbi Elchanan Shoff, um, his parents, uh, Karen and Alan Shoff, lived down the block and they've lived here for also close to 40 years. I've known them for 44 years, 45, going on 45 years. <clears throat> and um, if there was anybody devoted to a sense of the welfare of the community, it's Karen and Alan Schaff. And therefore, their son and daughter, um, Sarah Lipman, who's here, um, are part of what we would call this 
this, uh, what we call, the, I guess, the Jewish community or the Orthodox community. But we're not just a Jewish community, an Orthodox community. We're, we're family. So Elkanan has been devoted to learning Torah, to promoting community. He has he's, he created a community in um, central L.A. Maybe he'll tell you about it. Um, but if not, uh, I've asked him to speak tonight on a subject that would be uh, enlightening to us and inspiring to us. So please, Elkanan. Hi, everyone. Okay, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Would you silence your telephones? Please? Thank you to the silence. Thank you for opening your beautiful home. Um, and it's, it's humbling to be asked to share words of Torah on such a tremendous subject. Because what do I know? That's the truth. But what I do have the privilege of doing is saying nothing of my own. I'm not trying to invent anything. I just want to share with you some magnificent kernels of Torah that we have in our tradition. Um, let's start with a, a quote from the Talmud here. It says here at the end of Masechet Makot, Makos, it talks about Rabbi Elazar, Ben Azariah, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Akiva. These three great rabbis. Rabbi Akiva and two other great rabbis. Mahalchin Baderech. They were walking along the way. They were traveling somewhere. V'shamu kol hamona shel romi. They heard the sounds. This is a, I, uh, probably metaphorical, of course, but they could hear the sound of the multitudes of Rome roaring, like from the Colosseum or something. Um, they could feel the influence of the enthusiasm of Roman success 120 miles away. Okay, so in other words, at or meal, how far that is, at an enormous distance, the influence of Rome, right? I mean, you go around the world today and you get dropped off in somewhere in the middle of Africa and you'll see somebody wearing jeans and drinking Coke and wearing a Yankee cap. I mean, you could feel Rome from the land of Israel. They began to cry. You see, the Romans had destroyed the temple. The Romans were antithetical to Jewish values. The Romans were our enemies. They had enslaved us. The temple used to stand, and the Jewish people were a free people. And here we are walking in the land of Israel, and it feels like Rome. And they began to cry. For Rabbi Akiva, Misachik. And they look over at Rabbi Akiva, and he's grinning like the Cheshire cat. He is laughing. Umbrullah, they said to him, Mipnei ma'ata Misachik. What are you laughing about, Akiva? So he says, this is how Jews answer questions, right? Well, he asked another question. Well, why are you crying? They said, well, Goyim halalu shemishtachavim la'atzabim. These nations, they bow to idols. They worship false ideas. And yoshvim betach v'hashket. And they're sitting in comfort so these people who are worshiping every wicked ideology and promoting every wrong thing are sitting comfortably. The Anu, whereas we sit here in Israel, Beit Hadom Elokeinu Saruf, the house of God's footstool. This is a metaphor from the prophet. The temple is like the footstool of God. It's where the divine ideas can come to rest 
in this world. It was a place representative of everything good and holy and kind. Ba'esh, it was burnt in fire. Alone, if we're not going to cry. I mean, when you see the wicked people succeeding, and you see the righteous suffering, you see the people dancing in the streets after massacring Jews. How do you not cry over such a thing? Akiva, you, you have a, a heart of stone. That's why I'm laughing. If people who violate what's good, the desires of God, the will of God, people who do terrible things, are having that much pleasure in this world, then I think to myself, then for those who do the will of God, how much good is in store for them? Okay, look, it's a remarkably backwards perspective. But there's an optimism. It says, I'm not, you're right, right now it looks terrible. But when I think of the big picture, think of the world to come, I think of the reward that is eventually there, you know, it, it brings to mind the countless stories of, you know, Jews in, in, in the Holocaust and other times who, their last words were, I believe in the Mashiach. Their last words were, I believe one day there'll be a perfect world. As they're leaving a world that has gone terribly wrong, their last words are confidence that one day this world's going to be good, it's going to be free, people are going to beat their swords into plowshares. I mean, that attitude, Rabbi Akiva has this long perspective. And then it tells another story. It says, Shuv pam achat. It happened another time that the same people were walking with Rabbi Akiva and they were headed up to Jerusalem. And the custom was after the temple was destroyed, when observant Jews to this day, when they see the temple in ruins for the first time in the month or whatever, they will rip their clothing. As, as you would at a shiva, you know, if, if a relative died or something. So they were walking up to the, they got to Harhat Sophim, Mount Scopus, and that's where you can see the temple for the first time. And as soon as they, were, so they saw the ruins of the temple, they ripped their clothing. So you see it's a somber moment. And then, as they got closer to the Temple Mount, they saw a fox walking out of the Holy of Holies. The location where the holiest site of Judaism used to be, the Holy Ark that Indiana Jones is looking for, rested there. It was a very special place, right? And, and, and here comes a fox. Come on. So... I mean, they couldn't control themselves. They began crying. Rabbi Akiva started laughing. They said, Akiva, why are you laughing? He said, why are you crying? And they said, come on, what do you mean, why are we crying? They even quoted the language of a verse um, in the Book of Lamentations in Echa, where it says, Al-Eila ani The prophet says, I cry over this. Al-Hartzion On the desolate Mount Zion, which has... Foxes walk. So, I mean, they said, if there's anything to cry about, there's a verse that says, here's what you should cry about. And he said, that's why I'm laughing, because there's another verse that says that the temple will be destroyed indeed, but it links the destruction of the temple to its eventual rebuilding. And old Yeshvu, one day, long in the future, Zekenimu Zekenot, old men and old women will sit in the courtyards of Jerusalem, and the children will play, and he quoted this verse. And so he says, you know, and when you see the first prophecy come true, you know the second one's going to come true also. He says, from the, and therefore, he says, that's why I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I know the end of the story. 
it makes me think, you know, just at the beginning, every so often, um, I was a little younger, so I watch a movie with a superstar in the movie. So you have a movie or something, you know, as a kid, you watch a, a movie with Harrison Ford. And, right, that, this is how old I am. And, uh, right, about 40 years old. So uh, Harrison Ford is in the movie. So the thing is, right in the beginning, he's almost killed. So I was always one of these, like, a little bit cerebral. It ruins the movie a little bit. But I'm sitting there thinking, like, there's no way they paid him 40 million bucks to kill him off in the first three minutes. He's surviving, right? And, like, I really remember, like, sitting there thinking this as I'm watching... If he was on the thing, they wouldn't have paid him for one scene. So you know he's not going to die. Now the truth is, sometimes they fool with you because then, it's, then the movie, the whole movie is a flashback and the person did that. <laughs> but that attitude of like, we know the end of the story here. We know that it's going to end well. We have confidence that this world is going to turn out to be a beautiful, wonderful world. Um, even as there are hiccups along the way. It's a basic Jewish idea. It's a messianic worldview. And that's a very important starting point for what I want to share with you. Um, you see, this great personality, Rabbi Akiva, he consistently showed this behavior. At a young age, Rabbi Akiva was uninterested in Torah. He was not learned. And by the time he died, he goes down as one of the heroes in Jewish history, one of the greatest scholars we've ever had. Um, in fact, the entire Mishnah and Jewish practice as it developed, Kulhu Aliba de Rabbi Akiva. All of it got passed along through the channel of Rabbi Akiva. He was the one who stood out from the rabbis of the Mishnah, the rabbis of antiquity, um, and really developed the Torah in a way that it's unmistakable. When people didn't treat each other properly, and Judaism was suffering because of this, and Rabbi Akiva was the one to rebuild and to set things straight. So I'll tell you a drop about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd, and he was named Aramis, and he had a hatred for Torah scholars. He's quoted, he says, when I used to be just a simple farmer, I really didn't like these people. They thought they were more religious than me, they were so holier than them. If I used to say to my friends, Find me a Torah scholar, and I will bite him like a, like a donkey. So they, his friend said to him, what, like a donkey? Like, that's a weird expression. Say, bite him like a dog. So he says, no, because a dog pierces the skin when it bites, but a donkey crushes the bones. That was Rabbi Akiva's beginnings. Um, it's a wild story. The wealthiest Jew of his time, called Kalba Savua, it means a satisfied dog. That was like a full... Kalbasavua. So, or Ben Kalbasavua. So this man had a beautiful daughter. This is the wealthiest person in the world, in the Jewish world, and he had a beautiful daughter named Rachel. Um, she was the most eligible bachelorette, and she fell in love with the shepherd, who doesn't know the Shema, doesn't know the Aleph Ben. You know, that's not what the... That's not who she should be falling in love with. There's no such thing as falling in love... In those days, it didn't matter. Father says, no, you'll marry who I say. Mm -hmm. um, and like any good, you know, Disney plot, um, love wins, and they get married. But she makes a condition. She says, you got to go study. you got to go study something. You can't remain ignorant, you know. That's important to me. Um, and he did. And eventually became a very great man. They had some difficult times. They, her father said, you're out of the will. You're out of the estate. You don't get anything. And they were suddenly, she went from being a princess, essentially, to an impoverished woman. 
They were sitting and living in a barn. And Rabbi Akiva is picking straw out of her hair. This beautiful image of she's sleeping in the straw. And he's picking the straw out of her and he says, I promise you one day I'm going to make, I'm going to get money. We're going to be successful. And I'll buy you a Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. That's where that expression comes from. It was a tiara with the skyline of Jerusalem on it. That's what, that was like an expensive gold, Yerushalayim, made out of gold. A Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. One day, he was very optimistic. He was very much, they were very in love with each other. Eventually, she sent him off to yeshiva. She says, you got to go learn. And she sent him away to go study for 12 years, which turned into 24 years. Wow. He never stopped thinking about her. He never stopped, she never stopped thinking about him. He comes back with 24,000 students, and he's known as the light of the Jewish people. This is after the destruction of the temple. This is a time when people are very down and things are not good and everybody cries. And Rabbi Akiva is the one who comes in with this positivity. Rabbi Akiva tells everybody in the world, anyone who will listen, don't you ever thank me because everything I have is because of her. Shalit v'shalachem. Everything I've studied and everything you've studied from me is all thanks to her. And to this day, the Jewish people have to be mindful. This is a famous teaching in the Talmud, but it's very important. As I told you before, Rabbi Akiva is the center of the oral Torah. And he told us that all of that is thanks to this woman named Rachel. It wouldn't exist if she didn't believe in him and send him off. Rabbi Akiva continued to teach Torah to the masses, even as the Romans decreed the death penalty for those who did. And eventually, it's like Berhadrian, I think, but eventually um, they put Rabbi Akiva to death for doing so because he wouldn't stop. He said, I'm a fish. A fish has better chance in water than it does out of water, and the Torah is compared to water. So I'd rather just stick with my tradition and my identity and my teachings, and if you're going to kill me for it, you can kill me for it, but you can't make me change. And that was the lesson that Rabbi Akiva set um, as a martyr all throughout Jewish history. That's what happened to us. It's important to know this, that when people came into country after country and said, accept Islam or receive the sword, people accepted Islam. But if they came around during the Crusades and said, accept Christianity or we'll burn you or we'll kill you, what happened is, whichever, you know, if Constantine wins, Europe goes this way, and if he doesn't, it goes the other way. We all know this. This is how history went. The exception was the students of Akiva. That's the Jewish people who said, listen, you could kill me. And they have. But we're sticking with what we believe in and what we stand for. We're sticking with our identities. And that's what we've done. This is why we are here still talking about Rabbi Akiva. Um, you know, as he died, he said the Shema. That's what Jews would say. Right? The last words of a Jew. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Says Rabbi Akiva. But as that was happening, as they were torturing him to death, and he's about to say the Shema, the Talmud records that he was happy again. So the student said to him, what are you so happy about? He said, all my life, listen to the words, all my life, my whole life, all I ever wanted to do was fulfill the Shema, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with even if your life is at stake, you should be devoted to what's true and what's right and what's good. So that's I'm lucky to have the opportunity to find to put my money where my mouth is every day. I said this. Now that it comes my way, an opportunity to do this, I shouldn't be happy with this opportunity. And his soul left him as he got to the word echad. He said, God is one. Yatza nishmato be'echad. 
he died of the torturous death, as he said the word Asad, and that's the legacy of Rabbi Akiva. So I have a question for you. Everybody told you that for 40 years. So he was 40 years old. He hadn't studied Torah. He hadn't been observing. Wasn't proud of his Judaism in any meaningful way. His greatness came when he devoted himself to study. and to, so, so how does he say, all my life, call me online. All my life, I was hoping for such an opportunity. And he says, that's dishonest. Since 40 years old, maybe. And maybe did that happen the first day that he headed off to the yeshiva? Did it happen the first day that he began studying? Right? This is a question. What do you mean, all my life? It seems to me that this is a, a fair suggestion. This is my own suggestion, but I, I think it's fair. That when Rabbi Akiva discovered his relationship with Torah, with Judaism, with leadership, with what it means to be a Jew, he discovered that he hadn't added some sort of new thing onto his personality. Rather, he just discovered who he was and what he had been yearning for his whole life. Where did that sense of justice, where did that sense of kindness, where is it all rooted? What does it mean? And when he discovered that in the story of his people, and in the story of the Torah, and in the lessons that it spoke to him, he realized, this is what I've wanted my whole life. Kol Yama, my whole life I was looking for something to devote my life to, something to stand for, something to live for, and something to die for if necessary. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. You see, I'll try to explain further what that means, but... Long-term perspective is very different than short-term perspective. And in the long-term perspective, there's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of seeing how things worked out. I'll tell you what I mean by this. There's a famous teaching, you might have heard this before, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. It's a great mitzvah to always be happy. Mitzvah gedola lios besimchatami, liot besimchatami, always happy. So they asked him, they asked this great Hasidic master a couple hundred years ago, so what about at a funeral? So especially at a funeral. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you what this means. Mm -hmm. If you come to somebody who's legitimately suffering from something, they lost a loved one, but their feeling is there's no hope for the human race. There's no hope for me. I wish I was dead. That's alarming. Mm -hmm. The undercurrent of simcha, the undercurrent of joy, simcha, of positivity, of hope, should always be there, even when we legitimately experience suffering. Does that make sense? In other words, the simcha, joy, can express itself in many ways. Sometimes it, call, it, it, right, it, it calls a person to dance and to jump around, but that's not necessarily joy. That's one expression of it in certain appropriate situations. But a person can experience joy even at the same time as they experience pain. Because they're two different things. They're not exclusive. Happiness, positivity, hope for the future. There's so much of that accessible today. So j just as an example, for 2,000 years now, about 2,000 years, as far as I can tell, um, it's been open season on Jews. Since the times of Rabbi Akiva, experiences like October 7th were regular experiences. 10 years, every 20 years, again and again and again. 
And we just witnessed something that for the first time that I'm aware of in the last 2,000 years, mm-hmm. a statement was made, Jewish blood is not cheap anymore. We're going to knock you back to the Middle Ages if you keep doing this. Yeah. It's an unbelievably historic thing to me. In some ways, it could be that it's even more historic to me than the founding of the State of Israel. And that's a big thing to say, because imagine you met an Aztec, you know, or a, a Mojave Indian from North America, who said to you, you know, I really firmly believe that we are going to reestablish our Mojave State here in the United States. We're going to rid the place of all this technology. All that. We're going to go back to the old times. We're all going to come back. We're going to run the... You would say to the person, I'm sensitive to your feelings. I, what your people went through is very difficult, but it's highly unrealistic. For a couple thousand years, Jews were saying this, and everybody in the world looked at them like they were bananas. And they said, no, every time we pray, we face Jerusalem, and this is what we talk about, and every time at the Seder, the Shana Hababish, I mean, we didn't stop with this. Every day, we pray the Shona Esrei three times a day, and, and then we got back. I mean, it's a huge historical thing. Something tremendous happened in the world after October 7th. When, hey, we're going to stand up for something. I mean, that's unbelievable. To me, it's tremendously inspiring. It's historic. We're here to witness it. I saw story after story, and I'm sure you have access to this. You know, I have small children, so I want them to know what's going on with the Jewish people and in the world. Um, but I also want them to have this build them and not, I don't want them to become alienated from, you know, it's the world against us. I don't want them to turn into insular people. Like, that's not the goal. The goal is for them to know what's going on in the world, to feel sensitivity, to be able to pray for their brothers and sisters, but also to feel pride. And I'm constantly finding these fascinating, you know, a fellow who, who uh, owned a restaurant in Tel Aviv, not a kosher restaurant, and he's koshering the entire restaurant to make wow. it kosher because he wants to send thousands of meals to the soldiers he wants to make sure everybody can eat them. Wow. It's, it's, and on the other side, a yeshiva of Hasidic boys, who are generally, it's a yeshiva, you know, they, don't, they certainly don't send them to the army, and they're not very involved in the, and they lit a menorah for every single hostage. Because this is our family, and these are our brothers. These moments that people are coming together um, are so beautiful. How do you not laugh? How do you not smile? In other words, and it's very important to understand the following next lesson that goes as follows. The Talmud says that as the Jewish people crossed the Red Sea and the sea miraculously split, the Torah describes them singing beautiful songs to God. Az, Yashir, they sing this magnificent song. Okay, but the angels, the Talmud says that there's a tradition, the angels also wanted to sing and God silenced them. He said, you may not sing my creatures are drowning here in the ocean. And you're going to sing a song? It's not time to sing. This is very sad. All these Egyptians are dying. Which, which is a fascinating thing because it means that you don't have to be completely cut off to the emotions of what about a, a child suffering in Gaza? Like, no, you're right. I mean, if my people are, if human beings are suffering, then the joy is tremendously tempered, even if it saves them. The question is, the question is, the Jewish people sang a song. That song made it into the book of Exodus. It's in our prayers every day. So I don't understand. Did they do something wrong singing a song? The angels were told, be quiet. So maybe that song was misplaced. It's a good question, right? I mean, either it's an appropriate time to sing and rejoice, or it's not. So 
There was a great rabbi named Rabbi Eliel Meir Bloch. Rabbi Eliel Meir Bloch was a European Torah giant who escaped to America and opened a yeshiva in Cleveland, Ohio, called the Tells Yeshiva. Um, but he had escaped in a way that he hoped, as many people did, to send for his family. He was able to get one visa, and because he was a rabbi, and so he got out, and then he immediately started working to get his family back. And they were all killed. Mercilessly slaughtered. It was Simcha's Torah that year. Dancing with the Torah. The year, just after he had discovered that his family had recently died, and it wasn't just him. It was everybody he was dancing with. And he was dancing up a storm. And one of his students sat him down and said, Rabbi, I just don't get it. Where are you getting this joy from? We just lost our family. You lost your family. What are you doing? So he sat them down. And he told them this story from the Talmud that the angels couldn't sing. He said, so why could the humans sing? He said, I want to tell you a big secret. Human beings are capable of multiple conflicting emotions at once. Mm -hmm. It is unacceptable to not feel the pain of the person drowning in the Red Sea. The sadness of a whole group of people who became so wicked and so oppressive that there was no hope for them until at their last breath were spent trying to oppress others. That's heartbreaking. And there's nothing happier in the world than the splitting of the sea and God allowing the righteous to escape and mothers saving their children with them. That was a tremendous joy. He says human beings can feel two at once. He says, right now, he says, in my heart, I've never felt so broken in my life. He says, I'll never, ever be healed from the loss of my wife and the loss of my children. He says, and I've also never felt so much joy and so much pride and so much happiness that I have the Torah and I have Judaism and I have the people. In other words, at the same time, I'm experiencing both emotions. And it's a big misunderstanding to think that that's requiring some great nuance. That's what it means to be a human being. That's why in one day you could do something so kind. You can snap at your kid. You could, you could do something so mean and so nice within the same breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aesop has the famous fable of the mythical animal. Was it a satyr? Is that how you say it? Um, but this animal that uh, was walking along with a human being, and the human being you know, started to, wanted to drink something hot, so he blew on it. Right? And then later, uh, to cool it down. And then later, his hands were very cold, so he blew on them to warm them up. He says, I don't understand this. How could the same creature have two breath that's warm and breath that's cold? It's a brilliant thing. And he says, you know, that's the way people are. You know, we have that capacity. We have the com- but the answer is, it's a very sophisticated attitude. That there's no reason you are not betraying anyone or anything by also being happy and also seeing the good. A person who can see the good, can see the positivity, can see the beauty, and also can mourn the tragedy is a very healthy person. It's a very important thing. And, and I'll share with you a few angles why I think that is before we run out of time together. The, the necessity for simcha, for joy, for positivity, for optimism, It's tremendous. So that Rabbi Akiva, let me tell you another, I think we can see this from Akiva's life. There's a, there's a halachic discussion about when, like a Torah discussion about when is divorce appropriate. 
So listen to the opinions. The school of Shammai says that unless there was infidelity, people should try to work things out. Okay, that's, I mean, that sounds like relatively sound advice. Try to work things out, okay. The house of Hillel says that's worse. They say, even if you just don't like something about the other person, like even if a man, his wife, doesn't cook food to his liking. Okay, I mean, that's legally, you really can't get divorced. No fault divorce. We don't get along. So he says, if you just say whatever irreconcilable differences, I could not stand those matzo balls. Okay. Um, Rabbi Akiva. Listen to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the one with that great romance, that unbelievable story. In the whole Talmud, I don't believe there's a story that's as inspiring in terms of romantic love, the way it's described between the two of them. Rabbi Akiva is the great romantic of the Talmud in that way. I mean, I don't mean to to belittle anything. I say it in a very uh, admiring way. So Rabbi Akiva says, even if a man saw another woman who he thinks is prettier than his wife, he has every right to get divorced. Now listen, I'm a rabbi. <coughs> I'm telling you, if somebody came to me, Shammai sounds the most sensible here. Rabbi Akiva sounds off the wall. It just sounds crazy. I understand. I mean, you're going to divorce somebody every time you see someone else. So, so I, I want to tell you something. Rebekah is the one romantic voice here. Because Rebekah says, every couple deserves to feel. You know why my spouse is with me? Because of all the choices in the whole world, that's what they're picking. They must see. Every woman deserves to believe that my husband finds me to be the most attractive choice in the whole world. And she does. Because you know what? He can leave anytime he wants. How would anybody like to be trapped in a relationship where my spouse can't leave because the law doesn't allow them because I haven't been unfaithful. That's heartbreaking. Mm. So Rabbi Akiva is the one with this attitude of, and I want to tell you what this means. Is this person really the most attractive human being in the world? Is there anybody that's that delusional? But yes, because if you have a little baby, do you remember when you have children, a little baby, they are the cutest baby in the world to you. Okay, one of the cutest. Maybe a few kids, if you've quadruple, it's even as well. But that's the cutest. To you, there's something really beautiful about this child. And you might not believe that they'll make it in the magazine or that they'll win a claim for this or even that to anyone else they'll have that, those same eyes. I can see the most beautiful children. I do. Children are beautiful. You say, well, baby, they're beautiful. They're not mine or my sister's. My friend, right? Like, they're just, they don't have, I don't find them as delicious, despite the fact that they are, and to their parents they are. And a similar thing is very, very important to understand about our relationships in terms of marriage. You see, a person has the capacity to find the person they're with to be the most beautiful in the whole world. Now, that does not mean it does not mean that the person is delusional and thinks this person is the one who's going to be featured in every magazine. And, no, but, but it means that what they mean to me and what they stand for to me and what I see when I look at them is something of unique beauty that I'll never find anywhere else. And the truth is that in life, in life, this is a, our, the Jewish works write about this a lot, that this is a very special attitude. You have a lot of free will. Wherever you want to be. I remember, I'll, I'll illustrate this with a story. I was once on a panel of, you know, like, got a bunch of rabbis and, and, and people together, and they put us all on the stage, and they, as an icebreaker, they went around and they said, 
Where would you like to be if you could be anywhere in the world right now? Draw a picture of it. And everybody had a little pad and a thing. So one person, you know, uh, drew themselves sitting on a beach somewhere. Another person drew themselves in Jerusalem at the Kotel. I said, well, what's the rabbi going to put? Um, I drew a picture of that semicircle on the stage, and I circled my seat. Mm. Because if I wanted to be anywhere else, you know, I would be there. If I wanted to be in China, then I'd be on a plane right now, or I'd already be in China. Well, I can't, because of my job. Okay, well, I'll quit my job. I'll leave my family. I'll... In terms of the reality of the world that I'm in, exactly where I am right now is where I want to be. You want to be here. If you wanted to be elsewhere, you'd be elsewhere. I do, but I can't afford to lose my job. Great, so of all the choices you have in this world, of all the reality, this world, are, do you want to be married to this man or not? No, well, we don't get, so when do you get divorced? Well, I can't, because then I won't see the kids. Ah, so of all the real choices in the world, this is the absolute best one, right? I mean, that's an unbelievable breakthrough. A person can come to that with their therapist and realize, like, I'm actually in control here, right? I'm not a, a victim. It's true. I wish reality were different. Okay, that, that's something that I can't really help. I wish everyone was fairies and elves and candy grew from the trees. That's something I can't do anything for you about. Um, the therapist probably can. But this is really important because... Rabbi Akiva, take, when you take a broader perspective, when you step back, when you see the perspective of history, when you see the perspective of life, then even when bad things happen, a person is expected to have joy. And there's multiple teachings in the Talmud about this. That doesn't mean that you don't also feel the bad things, but you feel some perspective. Things heal, things change, history goes on, life is big, and in the big picture... Okay, a second thing is we talked about Jewish continuity. That's the destruction of the temple. Some people say there's this famous story in the Seder with all the rabbis who got together in B'nai Brak. But if you study a little Talmud, you'll know the only one of them who lived in B'nai Brak was Rabbi Akiva. And he was the next generation. He was their student. So it's interesting they went to him for the Seder. And some of the commentaries say because he was so relentlessly positive, they went to him. Because the temple was destroyed and the world was in a tough place. And that's when you need this Rabbi Akiva-like message which says it's never too late. You could have hit 40. So what? So you'll start now. You'll start now, like it's not too late. And the potential was always in there, and you always had this capacity. Jewish continuity. I want to tell you an interesting thing. You cannot pass along the beauty of Judaism mm. and the traditions of Judaism without simcha, without happiness, without positivity, without optimism. When it's, you better get in there and do Jewish things and go to Hebrew school or you'll make your grandmother jump off the roof, she'll be so sad. That attitude ultimately alienates people. And positivity and simcha and warm. If Hanukkah is just wonderful in your home, if when you make a Shabbat dinner for your family, it's just light and happiness and positivity and laughter, and good, then they're going to want to do it. Now, there has to be some substance. I want you to know. If you just sit down and play Monopoly with your kids, they might continue playing Monopoly with their kids. And that's also very sweet to have these traditions. But if we want to pass along Judaism, it's going to have to be some substance, something. you got to make the kiddush. You gotta, there's going to be something Jewish about it. Otherwise, it's just happiness, which is also really good and a value of its own. But it's the glue. The happiness is the glue. The simcha, the joy, the positivity is the glue that has people want to stick with. And it's not superficial. It's not just we laughed and we had a nice time. That's good. It's a happiness of this, we stand for something. We're part of something. We're proud of this. We know the Jewish. Not, not there's a lot of Jews in, who've played Major League Baseball, right? This, 
We have Jewish heroes. We have people like King David who said, if I have the right on my... I mean, and this is who, when people stood up to their masters who were enslaving them in the deep south, they felt like David standing up to Goliath. I mean, these messages, these heroes, these people who we base our lives on and we name our children after, and the simcha, the joy, the idea that this is real. We have heroes, we have a history, we have... There's no Jewish continuity without simcha, without positivity, without good feelings. A person who thinks that if I just show my kids that everyone in the world hates you enough, look at this, they all hate you, they're all anti-Semitic, they all want to kill the Jews, this keeps happening, it encourages assimilation. It doesn't encourage mm. Jewish pride. It doesn't do it. Um, despite the fact that those are, may even sometimes be true statements. Sometimes where you're living, that's what you're experiencing. And the answer is okay. But there's another thing going on too. You can have those feelings of fear and a person living in pre-war Germany who didn't feel that way was making a mistake. A lot of your neighbors really did hate you and there was nothing you could do about it. But there's also simcha. There's also joy. There's also positivity. There's also courage. It's, it's wonderful to be the underdog. It's wonderful to be the David and not the... You want to be the Goliath? Is that what we raise our kids? That's better to be the bully? Than to, it's not right. We're very proud. We're very proud, despite all the pain, right, of, of, uh, of the role that we've had in history. I mean, this attitude of simcha, this attitude of positivity, you know, it says there's a blessing that is in the very beginning of the prayer book, and it's recited every morning because it's a mitzvah to study Torah. And anytime you do a mitzvah, you recite a blessing. So we say a blessing for like the Shabbat candles, the blessing, right, before blowing the shofar, we say a blessing before studying Torah. So it's one of the first things in the morning um, is the blessings on Torah study. And that blessing says the following. It says, we, we thank you, God. Um, blessed are you, God, for giving us the commandment, sanctifying us with the commandment of of engaging in Torah study. And then we ask, all of a sudden we ask something. We say, Ha'arevna Hashem Elokeinu Azdevei Torah Skalofim. Make the study of Torah a sweet experience. Arev, sweet, in our mouth. And then we say, V'nihi Anachu, and then we and our children and their children will be devoted to the Torah. So it's telling you a secret that if you make it sweet, you can pass it along. If it's delicious, if it's sweet, if it's just a chore, certain days of the year we have to go to the temple, and we have to sit through interminable services, and we have like if that's the feeling, you ever have that feeling, you know, counting the pages in the mafzer, you've been there, right? It's it's tough. Again, people can handle a lot if the context is generally, but it's got to be filled with joy. It's got to be filled with positivity. And of course, there has to be substance. If it's just people jumping around with no substance of any kind, there's nothing for that glue. It's, but the simple is the glue, and it's got to have something. And this is like a critical thing to consider, that even at times like this in Jewish history, it's our responsibility not to allow our Jewish identity to exclusively become centered on how many Jews did they kill today, what's going on in the news, how do I respond to these people who are saying I don't have a right to exist, and that I can't defend myself, or that they, that whole part of our life, which is unfortunately going to take up some space in our brains, um, cannot compromise the requirement for simcha, the requirement for deep and abiding, authentic joy. And this can take some thought, because for an honest person, what does it actually mean to me that I am a Jew? What does that mean? Is it just 
my ancestry? Is it just some ancient history? Is there something about me and my life and the way I want to live it that makes it important for me to connect into this? Um, and I think we know that, that, that we do, we do have a deep and clear sense of this. You know, there was a, a great tzaddik named Rabbi Huda Hanasi, great righteous man, author of the Mishnah, Rabbi Huda Hanasi, and it says that the day that he laughed, the world would be in trouble. I mean, he was a serious person. He was a serious man. He wasn't filled with laughter. There was a guy named Bar Kapara. Bar Kapara, Kuf Pei Reish It doesn't mean for Kapara like the usual sense of the word. Bar Kapara. Bar Kapara was hysterical. He was always joking around. And he wanted to get ready to laugh. Why is that? The commentary is explained from a few sources. There's one story where one of the rabbis in the Talmud was walking through a broker, was walking through the shuk, and he saw people busy with their lives. And Elijah the prophet appeared to him. And he has this conversation with Eliyahu Hanavi. I don't know if he saw him physically or if this was some sort of, I don't I don't understand exactly what it means to see Eliyahu, but he says to Elijah the prophet, he says, Is there anybody in this whole marketplace who's a person of the world to come? Meaning these people seem like they're just busy with life. They're running or chasing their tail. Is there anybody here who's living for ideals? For... And he says, he introduced them to these two guys. And he said to them, what do you do? And they said, we're jokesters. Mm-hmm. And if we see anybody who's, you know, down, who's a little depressed, sad, we cheer them up. We joke, we laugh, we make them happy. Um, and he says, wow, those are truly people that are living a life of the world to come. So Bar Kapar, the commentators say, had the same, Marshall says, had the same attitude. He wanted to cheer Rebbe up. Now Rebbe felt, Rebbe felt that he's the leader of the Jewish people. He's the head of the exile. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of people suffering. For him to be seen just laughing and joking and yucking it up, is really not appropriate. It could be very hurtful to other people. It's not, it would bring, that may be the interpretation of the day Rebbe would laugh. It would bring pain to the world. So it may be that that's one possible interpretation. It would bring so much pain because he's the person with the weight on everyone's shoulders. He's praying for people. He's helping them. He's, and now you just see him sitting back and relaxing. You know, it's like during a time of crisis and you see you know, a president, something always gets in trouble for this. Right? There's a crisis going on in the world, they're seen on a golf course. You know? It's like always a problem. Every president has had this. But that's a very important thing. Like, Rebbe was sensitive that I can't be seen. And Bar Kapar's like, I'm going to get him to laugh. So, um, so Re- first, he didn't invite Bar Kapar to his son's wedding, even though they were very close. And he was a Chavrusa with his son, Rav Shimon. They were study partners. And he still, he didn't invite him to the wedding because he didn't want him to turn the whole thing into a joke. But he came... He came uh, and he scrawled a message onto the, onto the, you know, he put up like a sign or something on the roof and said, Rebbe spent 24,000 coins of some fortune, you know, on this beautiful wedding and he couldn't find a place for Bar Kapar. <laughs> so when people saw that, they chuckled. So then he wound up, he wound up, uh, he wound up uh, saying to Rebbe, and they said to him, said to Rebbe, you know, if those who, are ovre ritzon okach, if people that violate God's will by not inviting me, right? If someone doesn't invite me, is obviously a scoundrel. If they have such wonderful, beautiful weddings, imagine the weddings of people who do do God's will. So, so he invited them. So the commentary says, you know, that quote is the famous quote from Rabbi Akiva. That was that same quote from Rabbi Akiva. If the sinners get this, then the good ones get this, word for word, the same quote. And he was reminding him of Rabbi Akiva's laughter. 
Rebbe used to laugh. Rebbe used to be positive. Rebbe, you can, you can, you can laugh. So Rebbe said to him, um, sometime afterwards, he says, listen, please don't make me laugh. If you don't make me laugh, I'll give you 40 measures of wheat. Rebbe was a wealthy man. Like, I'll give you money for the year, basically. One opinion says it's enough to support his family for the year, but he said 40 measures. So Bar Kapara says, huh, you didn't say what size. You don't need to do the free. You do this thing, bring your own cup for the free Slurpee. And like, I saw two kids come in with a, with a, a kiddie pool. <laughs> you know, so that's what he did. He got a massive basket, and then he filled it with like tar because when you have a massive basket made out of palm, palm, you know, fronds, so then a little piece of wheat could follow the thing. No, he's going to show that he's going to get his money. To it. So he brought this massive basket and he put tar on the inside and then or the outside, and then he put it over his head and came walking into the room like a giant walking basket. And Rebbe broke up. He started laughing. Um, he says, "I came to collect my wheat." Right? So Remy started laughing, and he said, well, I don't owe it to you anymore because you made me laugh. And he says, yeah, but you might owe me some other way. I mean, it was endless. And it's a very, in my opinion, these stories are very important because life is important. And it's heavy. And it's so critical for us to maintain a focus in our Jewish life, besides for all the things of substance, which are so important, and the real conversations of simcha and happiness for ourselves, for our marriages, for our children. It's a very, very basic Jewish ideal and Jewish value. Tamid, at all times, a person has to be filled with a true joy. There's so much to be happy for. It is so good to be alive. It is so wonderful to have warm covers to sleep under at night. So many people know they go to Calcutta, India, and people have for generations have been sleeping on the same piece of sidewalk, and we have a comfortable bed. I mean, there's so much in the world that can bring us joy and simcha, and we are not betraying anyone or anything by deeply and richly setting times aside to soak in that and to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in fact, sometimes in times of trouble, it brings people together in unique ways. Sometimes in times of trouble we see each other differently. Sometimes there are sources of joy that would be unexpected and beautiful and unique, not despite what's going on, but even as a result of what's going on. And I think it's an imperative to keep our eyes, Rabbi Akiva-style eyes, you know, to see the beauty even when it's not there, to see those first 40 years of life not as any kind of waste, but as a time of searching as a time that built him into who he was, as a time that made him the sort of person that he realized that actually his negative feelings toward those Torah scholars were all part of an urge that he felt, I actually want to be like them. It was a joke. It was, a, it was his, his inner world. And you know, I'll just finish with this. The final story goes that Kalba Savua, his rich father-in-law, heard that a very wise man is coming to town and he says, I'd like to get a meeting with him because I made a vow, I made an oath that I would cut my child, my daughter and son-in-law, out of my will and never allow them to enjoy any of my assets. Mm -hmm. And according to the Torah, it's one of the commandments in the Torah, you make an oath, you've got to obey your oath. However, there is something called a Pesach. The Torah does describe that there is a way that you can undo an oath and you have to get a religious court together and you have to explain some reason why if I would have known this, if I would have known that, I wouldn't have made it. So it was sort of an error. And so he came to this rabbi and he went to ask him, I'd like to reinstate my daughter and I feel so bad about cutting them off all those years ago. 
So he doesn't know who this rabbi is. He doesn't know that his son-in-law has gone on to be anything different. He just knows they're gone. And it's Rabbi Akiva. It's him. So it's like similar to Yosef and the brothers. It's very interesting. And Rabbi Akiva turns to him and he says, if you would know that your son-in-law would go on one day to become a great rabbi, a great man, you were upset that he was not learned, he was not connected. If you'd know he'd go on to be a great man, would you have ever made such a commitment? And he says, never. Okay. And he says, in that case, you're not bound by it, and you go to the court, and whatever. So the problem is, Tosos, one of the major commentaries, medieval France, says Tosos, wait a second. Aim poskin benolad. If you, you are not allowed to annul a vow with things that happened later in the future. So because later something happened is not a valid way. It has to be something that was present then. So how could you say, because he went on to become a scholar, this tells us, you know why? Because he had already committed to going to study. And a person who commits to going to study so then it's the normal course of events that they become a great person. It just takes time. In other words, if you're standing at the bottom of a staircase and later you choose to go up, that's one thing. But if you're on an up escalator, then that's considered that you're already there. It's going to take time to get there, but you're already on that path. It's inevitable. From long before it happened, it was inevitable because his wife believed in him. She knew it was going to be okay. I know the end is going to come. And Rabbi Akiva went on, not just to have his own life be a sort of life where I know the end is coming, even if it's not going to be here for a while, to looking at history that way, and to looking at the Jewish experience that way. And even in times of trouble, to have confidence. We believe in the future. We know where we're headed. We know what the end of the story is. And we really, really are happy about that. We're happy about who we are. We're not disappointed in our role in history. We're proud of where we are. We understand where we're headed. I think that if we can take these attitudes a little bit and can chew on them and think about them and absorb them, they will enrich us endlessly. And that's why I chose to share these few ideas with you. Um, I really thank everybody for, for coming out. It's inspiring to be with a group of people talk about Torah ideas, to study a little Talmud. Um, I hope it won't be the last time that we get to see one another. Um, wishing everyone the best, best, best in every way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.